from Washington, this is VOA News. Secretary of State John Kerry in the Mideast talking with the Turkish Prime Minister and other leaders. While in Syria, another attack, this one killing women and children. I'm Marty Johnson reporting from Washington. Secretary of State John Kerry has urged Turkey and Israel to restore diplomatic ties quickly, saying each plays an important role in resolving other issues in the Middle East. Kerry met today with Turkey's foreign minister and talked to reporters about Israel's need to make restitution. And Doreen Jones reports from Istanbul the secretary also talked about the need to find an answer for the conflict in Syria. In a press conference with his Turkish counterpart, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry urged Ankara to continue efforts to rebuild relations with Israel. Turkey and Israel are both vital allies of the United States. Kerry said the restoring of Israeli-Turkish relations is important to his efforts to kickstart peace efforts between the Palestinians and Israel. The conflict in neighboring Syria was another key topic in Kerry's Istanbul talks. Turkey has also been incredibly generous to the refugees of this crisis, and they have taken them in by the thousands, kept their borders open, done everything possible to try to respond to that increasing humanitarian crisis. Secretary Kerry wants Turkey to keep its border open, a commitment the Turkish foreign minister made. Dorian Jones for VOA News, Istanbul. Activists say a Syrian government airstrike meantime on a mainly Kurdish area in the northern city of Aleppo has killed 15 people Saturday. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says nine children and three women are among the dead in the latest attack. Secretary Kerry moves on soon to meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem and Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank. There is more on the Secretary's Mideast trip on our website at voanews.com. South Korea's top military officer is postponing a meeting in Washington with the U.S. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff because of escalating tensions with North Korea. U.S. Army General Martin Dempsey was to meet at the annual military committee meeting on April 16th with his sole counterpart, but a spokesman for South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said Sunday that Seoul is concerned Pyongyang might stage a military provocation while General Jung Seong-jo was out of the country. On Saturday, a senior U.S. defense official speaking on condition of anonymity said the, the Pentagon has postponed a scheduled test of the Minuteman III missile from a U.S. air base in California in order to not exacerbate military tensions with North Korea. South African President Nelson Mandela has been discharged from a Pretoria hospital after treatment for pneumonia. An official from the president's office says the anti-apartheid icon will be at home under constant medical supervision. With more, here's VOA's Anita Powell from Johannesburg. Nelson Mandela spent nine nights in the hospital before being discharged Saturday. He was treated for pneumonia, and President Jacob Zuma visited him earlier this week and said he had made steady improvement. Presidential spokesman Mac Maharaj said Mr. Mandela will now get round-the-clock care at home. Like many South Africans, he referred to Mr. Mandela by his clan name, Madiba. We are delighted to inform you that the former President Nelson Mandela has been discharged from hospital today, the 6th of April. President Zuma thanks the hard-working medical team and the hospital staff for looking after Madiba so efficiently. Officials have noted that the 94-year-old icon has become increasingly frail, but Maharaj said Mr. Mandela's legendary spirit was undaunted by this last hospital stay. Anita Powell, VOA News, Johannesburg. 
A U.S. Foreign Service officer, along with a Civil Defense Department employee and an Afghan doctor, all died Saturday when a car bomb exploded as their convoy passed on the way to deliver books to children at an Afghan school. The attack in Zabul province, Afghanistan, also killed three U.S. soldiers. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry said he had met the Foreign Service officer, whose name has not been released, when he was in Kabul last week and described her as smart, capable, eager to serve, and deeply committed to our country and the difference she was making for the Afghan people. Two Republican lawmakers are asking the government to examine whether American pop star Beyonce and her rapper husband, Jay-Z, had official permission for a visit to Cuba celebrating their wedding anniversary. The couple celebrated their fifth anniversary this week in Havana, eating at some of the city's restaurants, dancing to Cuban music. A long-standing trade embargo prohibits Americans from visiting Cuba for tourism without government permission, but President Obama eased restrictions for academic, religious, or cultural purposes. This is VOA News. The nation of Cyprus narrowly avoids fiscal collapse as the larger European economy dodges yet another financial bullet. Why is Europe lurching from crisis to crisis? And if so, where will the contagion spread next? That's coming up on the line. This is On the Line. I'm Doug Bernard. When it was first proposed, the European Economic Union was supposed to create stability and growth across the continent. Well, lately, that's pretty much the only thing the Euro nations haven't seen. Economists call it contagion, how one nation's economic stumbles might cascade into a continent-wide economic fall. Is contagion for real? And can it be contained or even prevented? Well, in just a moment, we'll hear one economist's prescription, but the medicine might not taste so good. But first, the most recent flare-up of Europe's economic bug appeared on the divided island nation of Cyprus. But this wasn't just any economic illness. Cyprus' story is as much about organized crime as it is government overspending. Earlier, we spoke with journalist Nicholas Shaxon about the curious case of Cyprus. Nicholas Shaxon is a journalist and writer living in Zurich, Switzerland. He's also author of the 2010 book Treasure Islands, uncovering the damage of offshore banking and tax havens. And he's joining us from Zurich via Skype. Uh, Mr. Shaxon, let's begin, if we can, give us a sketch as to what you see recently happened in Cyprus. Cyprus is a small tax haven, and effectively the economy had basically been dominated by the financial services industry. And it had been very much uh, Russians and Ukrainians, former ex-Soviets, had been using Cyprus. Cyprus is a tax haven in, in, in a couple of main respects. One is bank deposits. There's quite a bit of, uh, uh, a lot of depositors had money there. But also it is a tax haven providing structures. Uh, so it might you, you might own an asset in London, say, through a Cyprus company. And that provides all sorts of uh, uh, secrecy and, and various other facilities. What happened in Cyprus was that uh, on the deposit side, so uh, the, the, you know, basically there was a, a bankruptcy and a bailout, and uh, the conditions of the bailout were that the depositors should be among those who take a hit, uh, as well as shareholders of the banks and so on. Um, and that created all sorts of big questions about banking, uh, you know, it created a lot of ripples in Europe. And one of the most significant uh, aspects of that was that an initial part of the package 
which was subsequently reversed, mm -hmm. was to make small depositors take a haircut. So people under 100,000 euros who were supposed to have been protected by deposit insurance were supposed to take a haircut, um, alongside the bigger depositors and wealthy Russians and so on. And this provoked remarkable outrage, unsurprisingly, in Cyprus. And eventually a package was agreed where only the larger depositors would, would take a, a haircut. What was interesting about this was that this struck directly at the tax haven model, the fact that large Russian and other depositors were taking a big hit on their deposits, effectively told them that Cyprus is no longer safe. This is not a safe jurisdiction to park your assets. And it seems likely that the whole financial services industry in Cyprus, or at least a very significant part of it, will more probably go out of business as a result of this. So it's, it's almost unprecedented in the tax haven world. So we haven't really if, seen anything like this before. So if I may, how was it that this small Mediterranean divided island nation came to be such a magnet for Russian and Ukrainian money? Well, essentially, a lot of tax havens are small places, by no means all, but many are small places. And uh, what happens, you see a kind of remarkable process of what I would describe as political capture by the offshore financial services industry. In other words, um, the, the, finan the, 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 the money people from outside come in and they effectively start controlling the politics of the place. And basically, you get a kind of anything goes model to financial regulation. So even though Cyprus's own laws weren't particularly egregious in tax haven terms, I mean, there are other tax havens that are substantially more secretive um, than Cyprus. It was selling, you know, to a large degree, non-compliance with its own laws. So it was turning a blind eye to this to this money. And, and now that the kind of balloon has gone up, there have been a lot of interesting revelations emerged about the extent to which the political elite uh, across all different parties were uh, in hoc, in bed with the financial services industry. I mean, if you look at political backgrounds of the people in power and the finance minister and so on, they've all been very closely involved in, in this industry. Um, and, you know, there's stories of, uh, have emerged in the, in, in the media of uh, politicians having, many politicians across the political spectrum having received loans, uh, which uh, loans from... Cypriot banks, which had been the key players in this sector, and, and loans which were written off. Um, so these are kind of, you know, it's a kind of a bribery in a way. So it's a, <coughs> it's a remarkable political tale of a small jurisdiction having been kind of captured by this financial services industry. I mean, you know, I think Americans would, would say that to an extent politics in Washington has been captured by the financial services industry. But what you have in a place like Cyprus is you have the same kind of process happening, but it's much it's a much purer process because, you know, the United States is, you know, Wall Street is a large financial center, but it is diluted in a, in a, in a very large and robust um, uh, democracy. Whereas in Cyprus, you have a very small population, a tiny political elite um, and a very large financial services, much larger in relation to the size of the population than right. the United States. Right. So you have this political capture, but in a much more kind of distilled, more crystallized way. So since this all happened, I've been reading lots of accounts of people saying uh, it's been something of an open secret that Cyprus had become a magnet for uh, particularly money from organized crime, uh, very often based in Russia or, or Ukraine. I never knew this secret. But if, if this was such an open secret, how was it allowed to proliferate and who's to blame? Well, you're touching here on a question that's it's a fundamental question about tax havens. They, they have been flourishing, growing much faster than, than mainstream economies since the era of financial globalization began and you know, really took off in, you know, around the 1970s. 
Um, why have they been tolerated? Why, you know, um, tax havens sell a range of services, but uh, one of the most prominent services is secrecy, which uh, I don't think many people would agree is a, is a good thing. Why has this been tolerated? The, the, the key reason is really that tax havens are the projects of the wealthiest and most influential people in society um, around the world. So, and, and countries such as Britain, uh, which has a whole series of tax havens of its own that are partly British around the world that are channeling money into Britain, have been very carefully um, uh, making sure that this system is allowed to continue. You have organizations such as the OECD, which is cl the Club of Rich Countries, which has officially been mandated as the kind of, um, you know, the, the, the bodies that, that's, that's supposed to be cracking down on secrecy. Um, it has got a, you know, a white, black and grey list system for tax havens and uh, the blacklist is completely empty. It's as if no, no um, bad tax havens exist. And this is, of course, not true. I mean, you know, there's very much business as usual going on. Um, so there has been, there is a great degree of tolerance by rich and powerful countries, including the United States, the United Kingdom, um, of tax haven activity. And Cyprus is, just fits that pattern. Various economists, Various economists. Uh, argue that, uh, look, tax havens uh, are, are a sign of uh, strength and of freedom and of liberty. Uh, and why shouldn't money, whether it's an individual's or corporate money, uh, be allowed to find the lowest tax or the most favorable tax policies? You seem to be arguing that tax havens don't speak to any strength in the system, but more to a frailty of our global economic system. Let's look at tax, for example. Um, through a variety of offerings, legal and illegal, and, and grey area in between, tax havens do allow corporations and individuals to cut their tax bills. But what we must remember here is, is that these are the wealthiest sections of society. These are the wealthiest individuals and the wealthiest corporations. They are able to use this system outside their own um, democratic uh, space to cut their own tax bills. And the result is that everybody else has to pick up the tab for them. Um, so this is a kind of escape route. The same goes for secrecy. The wealthiest and most influential members of society are able to take their money offshore, wrap it in secrecy, and um, you know avoid their responsibilities to their own society. And tax havens such as Cyprus have contributed. They're never the only factor, but they have contributed significantly to the criminalization of the former Soviet Union and also to all, all manner of ills in our own societies, you know, rich countries and developing countries. So this freedom that is spoken of is, is freedom for a very small section of society and it is freedom to escape from the responsibilities of society. And I think this is profoundly dangerous argument that is made in defense of tax havens. So in 30 seconds or so, uh, do you think Europe has learned the lesson here that Cyprus has been dealt with and that the contagion has been contained? I think Cyprus as a tax haven has been taken a very serious hit. I don't think necessarily that contagion, from, you know, the whole European crisis is a multifaceted complex thing and it's going to be rolling on for some time. I don't think that has been contained, but I think Cyprus as a small tax haven has taken a very serious hit and, and it may be the end of uh, the end of any serious offshore financial services industry there. Nicholas Shaxon is a journalist and writer living in Zurich, Switzerland. His most recent book, published in 2010, is titled Treasure Islands, uncovering the damage of offshore banking and tax havens. He joined us via Skype from Zurich, Switzerland. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This is On the Line. I'm Doug Bernard. Can Europe's economic contagion be contained? And what if the medicine feels worse than the illness itself? 
Well, economist Daniel Mitchell has a few thoughts on the matter. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute here in Washington, studying international tax and fiscal policies, and joins us here. Daniel Mitchell, is there such a thing as economic contagion? There's economic contagion in the sense that if investors, if savers, if business owners see that there are big problems in one country suddenly flaring up, and they look at their own country and say, hmm, we seem to have all the same characteristics, mm -hmm. that makes them a little bit more aware, a little bit of recognition, if you will, of the problem, which isn't a bad thing. If both of us are coughing a lot, you go to the doctor and find out, oh my goodness, I have lung cancer, I might think, oh my, well, I should go to the doctor too and see if I have the same illness. So it gives them the ability to know we have a problem, and the sooner you know you have a problem, the more likely you are to engage it. So is contagion really as much a matter of numbers and fiscal uh, things that can be measured as it is rumors and feelings? There's no question. There's a psychology in the marketplace. You could have countries in the European Union that are very, very well managed. Think of Luxembourg, mm -hmm. Denmark, Estonia. Sweden, or something like that. Now, maybe investors and savers in those countries will get nervous, but in all likelihood, they probably can relax. Even though this is considered an EU problem, mm -hmm. I really think it's a national government, national economy problem. If your country is overspent, like Greece or Italy, that's a problem you have to deal with. If your banks have made dodgy, bad loans and investments, say Cyprus or Spain, that's a problem you have to deal with. But it's not a euro problem per se. So let's look at the most recent example, Cyprus. Who is to blame for what happened in Cyprus, from your perspective? The banks made bad investments. If you look at their portfolios, they mm -hmm. basically bought a lot of Greek government bonds. Well, what do we know happened to Greek government bonds in the last couple of years? Everyone who held those bonds got a very serious haircut. So if you're, the, if you're a Cyprus bank, you invested in Greek government bonds thinking that was a safe investment. All of a sudden, you wind up thinking that, gee, I thought I had this many assets. Now I really have this many assets. So they are insolvent now. So it's not, it wasn't the Cyprus government per se. It was the banks making bad decisions. So if these banks, these are private banks you're talking about. Yes. If these banks made bad decisions, why aren't they being forced to, as they say, take the haircut, to, to feel the pain of, of the fallout? Well, they are being forced to feel the pain. In some sense, even though it's a, a muddled situation, what's happened in Cyprus isn't a bad outcome considering the mess they had gotten themselves into. The Cyprus government, yes, they've overspent. They don't have the ability to bail out their banking system. They couldn't do what we did with TARP. And that's actually a good thing because what they should be doing is shutting down the insolvent institutions. And at least one of the two big banks is being shut down. So that means that the big money shareholders and the big money bondholders are going to lose out. And then they're going to protect depositors up to the 100,000 euros, right. but then there's not enough money left over to bail out the big depositors. So all those big Russian money guys, some illegitimate, but a lot of them very legitimate people, they're going to wind up losing a chunk of their money. So journalist Nicholas Shaxson, uh, in his book, Treasure Islands, writes about Cyprus. This was several years ago, as well as some other uh, offshore tax havens, generally speaking. And he argues that Cyprus and other nations demonstrate the frailty of our global capitalist system, not its strength. What did Cyprus teach you? My old friend Nick and I, we have different views on tax havens. I think that they're refuges for people from bad governments. Uh, so if I was an entrepreneur in Russia and I didn't want to worry about being shaken down by the corrupt Putin uh, 
oligarchy, I would want to keep my money someplace else. But just like you can have good non-tax haven countries and mm -hmm. bad non-tax haven countries, mm -hmm. you can have well-run tax havens and poorly run tax havens. So if you put your money in Switzerland or Luxembourg, or, or for that matter, if you're a foreigner, you know, New York City is a tax haven in terms of the, of the rules, mm -hmm. your money's gonna be reasonably safe. But if you put your money someplace that's poorly run or a place where banks just made a very bad decision to buy Greek government bonds, then you wind up taking a risk. Now here we have, I, I guess you would say Cyprus was a bad tax haven. Is that a fair assessment? It, it was a place where banks, the two big banks at least, made very, very poor decisions to invest in Greek government bonds. Now, people in Greece made very poor decisions to invest in Greek government bonds. Banks in Germany and France made very poor decisions to invest in Greek government bonds, but it was the magnitude of the purchases of Greek government bonds by the Cyprus banks, that's what burned them. Just like if you bought a bunch of mortgage-backed securities back in 2006, you right now would not be feeling very good. No. Now, uh, let's go back not quite that far, but it was as recently as 2008-2009, uh, then British Prime Minister Gordon Brown, a number of European leaders were saying it's time to crack down on tax havens. Now, you wrote this recently. Uh, this is a Cato publication. You were talking about the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and you say the OECD essentially argues that it's illegitimate for businesses to shift economic activity to jurisdictions that have more favorable tax laws. I guess essentially means they're not directly arguing that, but in the end that's the effect of their argument. Why should individuals, however, uh, especially those perhaps like in the case of Cyprus, certainly some of those depositors were not all on the up and up, why should they have the ability to transfer money from haven to haven without some oversight or without some restrictions on that? Well, fundamentally, this is an issue that defines libertarianism. You believe in the freedom of the individual over the power of the state. And so we think individuals should have the right to move their economic activity to the jurisdiction that best protects their personal liberties and freedoms. And whether or not you're an investor in Argentina who doesn't want the government to expropriate your assets, whether you're a family in Mexico that doesn't want uh, the corrupt... Uh, version of the IRS in Mexico to sell your information to kidnapping gangs and then when you get back one of your kids fingers in the mail with a ransom note uh, whether you're in Russia and you're worried about being shaken down by the Russian olig oligarchy uh, whether you're ethnic Chinese in Indonesia and you're worried about cultural and uh, ethnic persecution there are lots of people all over the world that want the ability to move their money someplace where it will be safer than in their home countries I think as a libertarian as a decent human being I think that's a good thing, and I find that Gordon Brown and other people like that were reprehensible for trying to demagogue against tax havens during the financial crisis. Nobody in Liechtenstein told the Federal Reserve to have easy money policy. Nobody in the Cayman Islands had any responsibility for the corrupt subsidies from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The onshore world created the financial crisis, and then some of the politicians from the onshore world blame the tax havens looking for a scapegoat. What people were saying, however, also at the same time, was that some of these banks, some of the leaders of these banks, these private institutions, need to be brought to heel, to, to use just a phrase. Some of these banks were out of control, making bad loans, very little oversight. So in an interconnected world, doesn't that mean that we all potentially may suffer if one of these, even just one of these tax havens goes south? 
If you have a bank making bad loans, and whether it was Citibank in the U.S. Mm -hmm. or whether it was the Bank of Cyprus or whatever the names of the banks are that, that uh, got in trouble there, they should be wound down. Instead of doing the corrupt TARP bailout, mm -hmm. we should have done in the U.S. what Sweden did in the early 90s, or for that matter, what the U.S. did with the SNLs. When a financial institution becomes insolvent, it should be put into receivership, its assets should be sold off, the depositors should then be paid off, but the big shareholders and the big bondholders should lose their money because they didn't do their due diligence. Now, that has nothing to do with tax havens. It has everything to do with sometimes banks are poorly managed. I mean, that's part of the free market. It's capitalism without bankruptcy is like religion without hell. And TARP was, I guess, the Unitarian Church of uh, government policy. Let's move it forward just a little bit. Uh, austerity really seems to be uh, a dividing line in terms of whether that's the best medicine. Uh, austerity has already come to Greece, to Spain, to, in some form, and likely to come to Cyprus. How does austerity help a nation when it's suffering economically? Ultimately, you can't consume more than you produce. Some nations, just like sometimes some households, try to live beyond their means, and that gets them in trouble. Now, it's a huge debate what type of austerity you're going to choose. Unfortunately, with the exception of maybe the Baltic countries like Estonia, the European countries are choosing tax increase austerity. They're imposing the austerity on the private sector, which isn't very good for their economy. What they should be doing, they got in trouble because they had government spending too much money. They should be reducing government spending, not raising taxes. That's one debate, what mm -hmm. type of austerity. Then you have the Keynesians out there who are saying, well, gee, we got in trouble because we overspent. Let's spend a bunch more because that's going to somehow goose the economy. Well, that didn't work for Hoover and Roosevelt in the 30s. It didn't work for Bush in 2008. It didn't work for Obama in 2009. It didn't work for Japan in the 1990s. So what I always tell my Keynesian friends, show me one bit of evidence that this policy has ever worked. So I guess in the end, like there are good and bad tax havens, there's good and bad austerity? Yes, and there, there are good and bad non-tax havens. Ultimately, everything depends on whether people, whether they're in government or in the private sector, are making prudent, intelligent decisions. I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining yep. us today. Daniel Mitchell, economist and senior fellow with the Cato Institute here in Washington, D.C. Well, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing the thoughts. And before you go, I hope you'll take just a moment to send us any questions or comments that you might have. You can reach us through our website. That's www.voanews.com slash on the line. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you again next week on On the Line. An editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Latin America has registered enormous progress over the past quarter century. Most repressive regimes have gone. Voices advocating change once stifled now help push their societies forward. Economies are flourishing and the continent almost entirely moved toward democracy. 
In a single generation, our hemisphere transformed from an exception to an example of the worldwide embrace of democratic values, said Deputy Secretary William Burns before the Organization of American States. At the core of this transformation was our regional architecture. The Organization of American States played a leading role, from settling border disputes to rolling back coups, encouraging economic development, and fighting corruption. And so did the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, a founding pillar of our regional human rights architecture and an example for the world. For more than five decades, the Commission has served as the hemisphere's moral conscience, said Deputy Secretary Burns. No government should place itself beyond international scrutiny when it comes to the protection of basic human rights and civil liberties. This conviction drives us to continue to try to perfect this institution. Because while our progress in defending and advancing human rights is significant, it also remains incomplete and uneven, said Deputy Secretary Burns. This is why a stronger and more capable commission is in all our interests. So when a handful of nations attempted to undermine the commission's ability to hold governments, including the United States, accountable by proposing changes that would erode the commission's autonomy and independence, the United States and the vast majority of OAS members joined to reject all such proposals. We must be vigilant against efforts of some to weaken the commission under the guise of reform, said Deputy Secretary Burns. As State Department spokesperson Victoria Newland said, the defense and promotion of human rights is a founding principle of the OAS. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights impacts thousands of lives in the hemisphere through the issuance of decisions and recommendations to OAS member states to improve the human rights conditions in their countries. The United States is committed to sustaining the Commission's work and its role in advancing the promotion and protection of human rights throughout the Americas. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. the nation's capital. The Voice of America presents Issues in the News. The nation's top Washington correspondents offer their perspectives on the week's major stories. Your moderator is Fred Barnes of the Weekly Standard. Issues in the News begins now. Welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Fred Barnes of the Weekly Standard. Joining me on the show this week are Barbara Slavin, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and Washington Correspondent for AlMonitor.com, and David Rennie, Lexington Columnist for The Economist. And here are the issues. In still another threatening statement, North Korea announced its military has been cleared to launch a nuclear attack on the United States. In Kazakhstan, a new round of talks on Iran's nuclear ambitions has begun. Meanwhile, American Secretary of State John Kerry is returning to the Middle East to prod Israelis and Palestinians to resume peace talks. And President Obama is giving a series of speeches around the country to revive fading hopes of enacting significant gun control legislation this year. Well, David, let me start with you. And this question comes up every week. Uh, how seriously should we take 
uh, the North Koreans. All the threatening statements, and they really haven't done much uh, militarily in terms of moving uh, parts around, but how seriously should we take them? Well, the conventional wisdom around North Korea, which probably has quite a lot to it, is that the actual bellicose language we can discount. I mean, they have been declaring war, you know, every year for as long as they've existed. Well, they, I don't um, think they've ever threatened a, a nuclear attack on they, the United they, States. They, they used to routinely declare that they were about to turn South Korea into a sea of fire. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, you know, this, I, this level forgot. of rhetoric is, yeah. uh, is, is pretty standard stuff. I mm-hmm. mean, they, they, they have survived despite a completely broken economy, with what uh, one diplomat calls belligerent mendicancy. I mean, they're basically the kind of the aggressive beggar who kind of comes after you. The problem that everyone worries about in this case is, of course, we have a new and very untested leader. We don't know how this young Kim Jong-un, the new leader, we don't know how solid his grip is on the military, on the security kind of deep state. And so with a a new untested leader of uncertain uh, stability, then there's the risk of miscalculation because these are very dangerous games of brinkmanship and, you know, clearly he's new and untested. That's the new ingredient of, of alarm. So what are the prospects for an accidental war? The U.S. obviously, you know, flew B-2 bombers over the Korean Peninsula and then sent some ships over there, but now seems to be, at least the Wall Street Journal says, inclined to sort of ratchet that down a little. Well, I mean, I used to cover North Korea out of Beijing a few years ago. And, you know, when I was there a decade ago, I mean, there was some pretty bad, hot sort of incidents. And and actually, the system has more elastic in it than you think. So the North Koreans have sunk South Korean naval vessels and killed South Korean sailors in recent times. And there wasn't a war because people are very conscious of the stakes. You've had North Korean midget submarines, you know, coming aground with dead North Korean sailors. I mean, there's a lot of stretch in the system. I mean, this is a very dangerous situation, but actually neither side has a particular interest in triggering an enormous shooting war. And then, of course, you have the extraordinary role that China plays, because China uh, basically seeks stability above all in that region. And the big picture for China is that stability means having a buffer zone of North Korea in place. But within that, of course, China is extremely unhappy about the, the North Koreans' behavior. And China has the spigots. China, Without China, North Korea has no sources of fuel and not enough food. And so China is in this very strange position of not having chosen to act to date. But it does have a kind of hand on the spigot. Well, Barbara, what's your take? Uh, Pretty much the same as David's. I mean, we used to talk about North Korea having uh, practicing judo diplomacy, asymmetric diplomacy, what you will. I mean, it it takes its weaknesses and it turns them into its strengths, the fact Mm -hmm. that it is poor and isolated and has a reputation for being a little bit crazy. And it's using it once again. I think there are a couple of reasons, possibly. Kim Jong-un wants to shore up his position as the leader, as the, the third now in the Kim dynasty running this odd place. Uh, also, we have the birthday of the founder of the dynasty, Kim Il-sung, coming up on April the 15th. And some belligerent act perhaps tied to that could be expected. I, You know, he's not going to, obviously, he can't send a a missile to hit the United States, uh, despite the claims of the North Korean media. But could shoot off a missile, have another nuclear test even, although that's probably unlikely, or have some incident with South Korea that causes casualties uh, to mark his uh, emergence on the stage and to also mark this important birthday. What about China? China wants a uh, a buffer zone, but also wants a stable uh, Korean peninsula. 
Well, uh, you know, again, for China, I mean, North Korea is sort of the, not to mix metaphors again, it's like the crazy ant in the attic. You know, North Korea makes the Chinese look good by comparison. When uh, my husband and I lived in China back in the 1980s, uh, I always remember our Chinese employees making fun of the North Koreans with their little Kim Il-sung buttons. And we had to laugh because just 10 years earlier, that had, of course, been China during the Cultural Revolution. So the Chinese are worried. Obviously, they don't want a major war to break out. South Korea is a very important trading partner uh, for China, far more important than North Korea is. Uh, but I think they can also accept a certain amount of bad behavior. It's, it's part of North Korea's persona, you know, that we've all gotten used to over the years. It's a tragic lack of imagination, really. I mean, there should be a grand bargain available. I mean, North Korea is not a very populous country. I think it's 20-odd million people. You know, the South Koreans are frozen as thing as saying, well, we kind of want reunification, but if the barrier came down, ooh, we're not sure we could afford to cope with, you know, doing an East Germany-style reconstruction. The Chinese say, oh, we'd be very frightened of American troops moving from South Korea up to our border. You know, there's got to be a grand bargain there. You say, we could pay for this. You know, the Americans yeah, wouldn't but, come. But the Kim dynasty yeah. would not survive without no, 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 this isolation. The, the, that's, the, be, that's the problem, no, no. right? North Korea leaves them aside. But there should be a grand bargain for China and America to reach, you know, where the Americans would not put troops on the border with China and, and we would pay for North Korea's reconstruction. But the problem there is that the Chinese, although in some areas like trade they're increasingly rational, you can talk to them like a normal country, there is this kind of deep security state, military sure. state mm -hmm. in China and this is one of those issues that is controlled by the deep state in China and they just will not talk. I mean, you can talk to American officials who say a couple of years ago, the Chinese were really sick of North Korean bad behavior and they were starting to come around to the American arguments. Mm -hmm. You know, the Americans say, if you don't like the posture of American forces in places like Japan, our agreements with Taiwan, well, do something about North Korea. You know, we are in your backyard because of North Korean bad behavior. The rational parts of China hear that the problem is that then North Korea nearly fell apart in the last days when you had the, the previous leader, Kim Jong-il, uh, had his stroke. You had this botched currency devaluation and the economy nearly collapsed. North Korea looked on the point of collapse. And at that point, the Chinese just flipped and they said, we can't cope with the North Korean collapse. That triggers all of our deep, deep state instincts. And they moved away from a kind of rational discussion with the West and went into this kind of crouch, this much more old fashioned crouch. And it's a very depressing scenario that we see at the moment. You know, Barbara, I recall talking to uh, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice in the George W. Bush administration and hearing from her this repeated frustration with China's uh, refusal to act boldly to curb uh, the North Koreans. Yeah, well, you know, look, the North Koreans have lost a sort of buffer in Burma now. I mean, there is rising nationalism in Japan and more support for the defense forces there than there has been since World War II. You have Southeast Asia up in arms over Chinese incursions, a lot of disputes over islands and so on. And uh, I think I understand why the Chinese would want to hold on to North Korea, but, you know, it's such a difficult country. And, I mean, the propaganda... It's, uh, we used to joke, actually, when we lived in China that we would enjoy writing North Korean propaganda because it was so over the top. But, you know, uh, there was even a parody, actually, that went around on the Internet. of um, It was supposed to be a propaganda film where the North Koreans were showing how Americans were so desperate that they were surviving on killing birds and eating snow. But it was so well done that a lot of people actually thought it was for real and, and not a spoof. Uh, it is just such a unique place. My feeling is if we can and prevent a confrontation over time. You know, the North's monopoly on propaganda on information is eroding. The state will eventually crumble. I don't think there will be another Kim after this Kim. But we have to get through some more bumpy years.
Well, we've been waiting a long time for this state to crumble. Into... Yeah, and having been to North Korea a couple of times, I mean, I can't stress enough, this is not just another Burma or another kind of Uzbekistan with a nasty dictator, but CNN in the televisions and, and you know, Western cars driving around the streets. North Korea is a parallel universe. <laughs> it is the 1950s. It is Albania circa 1955. There are people in North Korea who have no idea that Americans landed on the moon. They mm. think that the motor car was invented by a North Korean. They've never heard of the Beatles. I mean, this is, you know, this <laughs> is... Now this that's is, something. There, yeah. there, this is there, first... No, no, we, they sang us a North Korean folk song in North Korea. And it was Imagine. And we said, no, no, that's not a North Korean folk song. That's by a man called John Lennon. Who's John Lennon? <laughs> I think they've been seeing some videotapes of South Korean soap operas, and a little reality has managed to penetrate over the last few years. Although I, last time I was there was in 2000. You know, so it's slow. Okay, but I think it is inevitable. Yeah, let me ask one more question. This being a show coming from uh, Washington in the United States. Uh, David, what do you think the American role is or should be? In the North Korean conflict? Mm -hmm. There aren't a lot of good options, but I, I think American policy is basically to try and balance the demands of the region with the need to have a good relationship with China. You have the neighbors who basically wanted a vigorous American presence. They want to see American aircraft carrier. They want to see American missile defense systems in the region. But they also want America to have a good relationship with China, which is, of course, the most important trading and, and financial relationship America has. I think that America's policy falls into the category of so much American foreign policy, which is you can't fault it by saying there's a brilliant other policy they should have tried. But on the other hand, you can't say that what America's doing at the moment is working. Mm -hmm. We're kind of stuck. Uh, yeah. I think that's that's my sort of judgment. It, it, Barbara, would anything that the U.S. does actually work to change the situation there? I mean, any rational policy. It's difficult to see at this point. I mean, I think we've tried everything, <laughs> you know, short of attacking the place. So I think the onus is on China uh, and also on South Korea to some extent, and we'll follow their lead. Well, okay, and I think we belabor that issue sufficiently. <laughs> Let's see if we can belabor these new talks that are happening in Kazakhstan between the Iranian officials and the, what, P5 plus Germany. That's the permanent uh, five members of the United Nations Security Council. And, Barbara, the Atlantic Council, of which you're affiliated here in Washington, has issued a report that's entitled Time to Move from Tactics to Strategy on Iran. What does that mean? Well, first of all, let me say thank you, North Korea, for making Iran look rational by <laughs> comparison, apart from some uh, unpleasant remarks by Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, which he has not repeated lately, I must admit, about Israel. They haven't been threatening to uh, turn anybody into a sea of fire lately, uh, and uh, they've been relatively restrained. The talks, uh, the talks, um, judging from the latest reports from my colleague uh, Laura Rosen from Almaty, Kazakhstan, they have not gotten off to a terribly good start. Uh, why am I not surprised? These talks are not necessarily about a solution. They're about staving off a military strike and uh, keeping some sort of process going while we try to retool our strategy. And this report has a number of elements. Uh, a lot of very distinguished former U.S. officials uh, signed on to it, a former deputy treasury secretary, former CIA director, former joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, former uh, veteran diplomat. What it basically says is we have to try to build a relationship with the Iranian people even while this dispute goes on. And it makes suggestions for retooling the sanctions, designating a couple of banks in uh, Iran and in the U.S. where you can have authorized transactions for humanitarian purposes, things like trade and food and medicine, supporting students in this country, supporting other academic exchanges. It talks about asking the Iranians to 
put Americans in an interest section in Tehran to process visas for Iranians. It talks about increasing exchanges. Uh, one of the good news stories that hasn't been reported really until now is that uh, scientific exchanges and meetings are actually on the rise again. They went down after the disputed elections in 2009, but the American Academies of Science and others have been having meetings on issues like water quality, AIDS research, uh, earthquake prediction with Iranian scientists, American scientists, and so on. And we have a virtual embassy, U.S. embassy for Iran. There are suggestions in the report for augmenting this in various ways. And we have to understand that the nuclear question may or may not be resolved in the short term, even in the longer term, but that if we lose the goodwill of the Iranian people, which we are beginning to do because of sanctions, then we will have lost perhaps the most valuable asset for the United States. Um, at the event where we launched this report, and one can find it at acus.org, I quoted Mike Hayden, the former CIA director, as saying that the Iranians have been the most pro-American Muslims from Marrakesh to Bangladesh. And we don't want to lose that important asset uh, as time goes on, especially with all the rest of the turmoil in the Middle East right now. Well, David, what do you think? Well, I mean, I'm sure it's a very serious piece of work. And, and I, I must admit, I, I have a kind of sort of sceptical reaction to that, which is, I mean, if Iran were Burma, then this is a kind of beautiful strategy for coping with the fact that Iran has a hostile dictatorship that we find very difficult to deal with. And we, and we do, of course, need to reach out to the Iranian people. And there are young, educated people, certainly in Tehran and the other big cities, who are chafing under the restrictions imposed on them by the religious leadership of Iran. But they're trying to build a bomb. And if they get anywhere close to building a bomb, that's going to trigger a war between Israel, America's closest ally, and Iran. And it seems to me that it's very, very hard to kind of get around that separate problem because the Iranian people, the same Iranian students who deeply dislike the mullahs, who deeply dislike religious restrictions imposed on them or the, you know, all of the sort of ghastly corruption and, and squalor of living in a dictatorship like that, a lot of them probably would also quite like to wake up and find that Iran was a nuclear power because they're also nationalists. I mean, the problem we face with the nuclear question with Iran is that it's quite clear that we're dealing with a government that if they could suddenly kind of do a magic trick, pull off the cloths and say, ta-da, here's our bomb, that's what they would like to do. And frankly, if you were the Iranian government, that's what you would want to do too, because they look around uh, at uh, Muammar Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein, and they figure these guys are in a ditch dead because they didn't have a bomb. So we need a bomb. And they look at North Korea. Well, we're tiptoeing around North Korea because North Korea's got a bomb. So it's rational for them to want one. And the game is the race between where they are now and that ta-da moment where they pull the cloth off and there's the bomb. And it seems to me that that's just because of the impacts on Israel, because of the security relationships in that region. I don't see how much room there is for all alternative strategies that, that aren't about that. I, I mean, I applaud the effort, yeah, well, but I wonder we, how you can have that alternative. Uh, uh, Barbara, hold on a minute, and we'll return to you uh, uh, just after I take a break here and remind listeners that this is Issues in the News coming to you on The Voice of America in Washington. I'm your moderator, Fred Barnes of The Weekly Standard. Joining me today are David Rennie of The Economist and Barbara Slavin of Almonitor.com. And this is a reminder that you can listen to Issues in the News as a podcast online please visit our website, voanews.com, slash issues in the news, and click on podcast. Yeah. Well, Barbara? Well, the report isn't just about engaging the Iranian people. It's also about the nuclear question, and it sets out, I think, very reasonable parameters for a settlement that would satisfy the nationalistic pride of most Iranians. It says we have to recognize that can enrich uranium. They're already doing it. 
uh, should be capped at 5% of U-235, which is the ex explosive uh, isotope uh, that, of course, if you go up to 90%, it's weapons grade, so keep it at 5%. has to be uh, verifiable. Uh, they have to explain past actions toward weaponization, and they have to also present a reasonable estimate of how much low-enriched uranium they need for civilian purposes. The Iranian leadership talks about acknowledging their right to enrich. Well, this would acknowledge their right to enrich, uh, and I think it would satisfy most Iranians who are really suffering from the sanctions. I was there last August. People are in a terrible state. This was the worst Persian New Year most Iranians have faced since the Iran-Iraq War. And the leadership is very, very well aware of the level of discontent. And I think if there were a face-saving exit, such as proposed in this report, that the Iranian leadership might take it. This has been a very slow crawl toward a bomb. They've shown extraordinary patience. Started back under the Shah more than half a century ago, and they have taken their time. They may not necessarily need to have a bomb. They may be able to be quite satisfied with a kind of virtual uh, nuclear weapons capability, which the world could live with, might not be happy about, but not actually go as far as, as North Korea has in terms of building and testing a weapon. I don't know. It's hard for me to believe they'd be happy with a virtual bomb. It wouldn't have the same impact you talked about North Korea. Why do we deal with them so gingerly? It's because they're a nuclear power. You've got to assume, I mean, I, I bow to Barbara's sort of knowledge of, I mean, I've not been to Iran for, for many years, but I mean, for example, we now have these presidential elections in Iran in June. Should we see those as a useful barometer of Iranian opinion? I mean, in terms of these awful sanctions, which clearly are causing, you know, tremendous hardship on a day to day basis. Can we say, you know, we will now know from these presidential elections who they blame? Do they blame us, the outside world, the West, or will they think that it's the, the fault of their mullahs for trying to get a bomb? Can we read anything like that into these elections, or is, is it going to be a purely domestic election? I'm not, I'm not sure we'll be able to. I, I don't know how important the nuclear question will be in these elections. A lot depends on the candidates that are allowed to run, and right now it doesn't look terribly promising. I mean, the clerics control everything, and they'll control who gets to run, and most likely it's going to be uh, an election between Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Uh, we may not even see the kinds of televised debates that they had in 2009, which were quite fascinating, actually, in terms of giving a sense of, of uh, feelings about these issues. But I think the turnout will be very interesting. If it's low, uh, it'll be a reflection of Iranian alienation, disaffection from the system, which is partly caused by the way the government has managed or mismanaged this nuclear question. But this is a giant question, who they blame for the sanctions. Mm -hmm. Does your report go into, go into that? I mean, I mean, the sanctions in part must be about trying to get the Iranian people to turn against their own government and yeah, decide the bomb a, is too high a cost. You know, again, this is, this is all anecdotal. There, there are polls uh, which show the Iranians blaming the United States. I mean, I spent time with people that I have known for years who in the past were very pro-American and who were quite candid with me. And uh, even just the sense that, you know, when you announce you're an American and you're in a, a shop in Tehran, it's no longer, oh, you know, we love you. It's now, mm. oh, you. Uh, I mean, one can feel it. And it's, it's a very distressing uh, emotion to experience if for somebody. I've been going there for 15, 16 years now, so it was kind of sad to see. Okay. We have two more issues to go, which we're going to have to do uh, very quickly here. The first one is, uh, David, uh, Secretary of State Kerry's trip to, uh, when he's going to Jerusalem anyway, to the Middle East and to uh, see what he can do about reviving any Israeli-Palestinian talks. Uh, it, one question that uh, that comes to my mind is, 
with all the other things going on in the world that are so important, why why bother with that since the, the prospects are, are so meager? Well, before Secretary of State Kerry uh, took up office, the people around him, uh, when they were asked, you know, how much you know, slack is he going to be given by President Obama to pursue his own agenda? One of the key questions, one of the key points of difference was clearly that the White House was much, much more sceptical about the prospects for a big comprehensive revival of peace talks. Mm -hmm. And the word from kind of Team Kerry was, you know, he's keen to see what the chances are. He wants to kind of take soundings. He wants to really sort of satisfy his own kind of sense of you go to the very, very last mile of kind of patient diplomacy and endless talks and talks. And, and then he would come back and report to the president whether there were kind of prospects for well, reviving this. And so I think, you know, well, the president was just there himself. Well, yeah, but the, the, the you know, the, the traditional method is that the, the president has to be available. The president has to be the kind of final arbiter and, and the final things will always be worked out at that level. But the secretary of state does this kind of soundings and sees what the chances are. I think that as far as I can tell, the White House still thinks, uh, to put it crudely, that you can't want peace more than they do. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that the prospects are pretty dim. But um, this is a pretty fly visit. He's on his way to Asia. Uh, he's True. But, you know, he has been described to me by someone close to him as someone who, who will, he always, always wants to exhaust every last possibility of, of diplomacy and, and to go to the very last mile. So I suspect that fits into that. Well, I guess it does. Uh, uh, Barbara, do you want to add something to that? We also have to get the President Obama and gun control oh, in a moment, but go yeah, ahead. Sure. Yeah. No, I think we, we predicted actually before Secretary Kerry took over that he would be more hands-on on this issue than Hillary Clinton had mm -hmm. been. Uh, and, and indeed, this is a shuttle without calling it a shuttle. Uh, and nobody expects a peace plan, maybe not even formal talks, but, you know, there can be some gestures. The Israelis can let go some political prisoners, uh, which has been a big issue for the Palestinians. There can be other things that can be done to improve the quality of life for uh, the Palestinians. There have been some demonstrations recently uh, over the killings of, you know, Palestinians and, and the prisoners, and we don't, you know, you don't want to see another intifada, a third intifada breaking out. So... By going, he may be able to forestall that and uh, and at least keep keep the place quiet for a while. Gun control, President Obama, David. Uh, I give the president some credit. I mean, this uh, he's uh, already given a speech in Denver. He's going to give several others going to the Northeast to talk about gun control. Just at the time that in Congress, the prospects of any significant gun control legislation have have really faded. I don't think there are many people who expect that the president will be able to revive them, at least uh, uh, a, a significant piece of legislation. But there he is out there, and uh, uh, and it is, I would say, uh, politically somewhat risky, because if he doesn't uh, uh, produce a stronger bill than what appears to pass, if anything passes, uh, no doubt the press will criticize him for that. Well, unless you take a more cynical view, which is, I mean, not even cynical. I mean, the sense in Congress is that this is dead. Nothing's going to happen. I mean, really, almost even the things that we thought were easy, sure. you know, some federal legislation making it uh, more dangerous to, to sell a gun to a criminal who's not allowed to own a gun, you know, what they call the trafficking legislation, even that may not get through now. I mean, really, the level of ambition is, is, is close to zero. Perhaps when we see President Obama flanked by policemen in Colorado, the state where we've had some gun massacres, uh, saying he wants this to happen, we're now in the process of assigning blame for failure as opposed mm. to a president lobbying mm. for success. Uh, and I think we've seen that basically, uh, although, as the president never sort of uh, tires of saying, 90% of the American public tell opinion polls they'd like to see tougher background checks. This, isn't, this is a classic example where 
a very, very passionate minority uh, is going to win this argument. The uh, Barbara? Well, you know, the action has, has moved to the states very much. We've seen very good legislation that's been passed now in New York, Colorado, Connecticut, and Maryland. The uh, legislature there has just passed some very, very tough new gun laws. I think there are seven states plus the District of Columbia that ban new, new sales of uh, military assault-type weapons. So, you know, the tragedy of, uh, of Newtown is not, not completely for naught, I think, because of that. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but Congress is coming back and... And I think there is still going to be some sort of debate on the floor of the Senate. Um, And it's possible that some of the things that were knocked off the legislation might be re-added in the form of amendments. And maybe they can at least come through with something like mandating background checks for people who Mm -hmm. buy guns, even though it's not quite certainly nowhere close to what one would have hoped for earlier. Uh, It it, it, there will be some effort, I think. Well, one of the problems for uh, gun control is that even some Democrats um, who would be needed to pass legislation aren't for it. That's right. And and one of the most sort of, uh, there's been some extraordinary sort of stories in the papers recently uh, confirming what we sort of knew, but really giving us numbers, that one of the problems with this is that large parts of America just are not affected by gun murders. This is, you know, tragically an unbelievably racially divided and economically divided story. There are cities, particularly with African Americans, where you have extraordinarily high levels of gun murders, but there are lots and lots of states with Republican congressmen and senators, you know, states like Wyoming and Montana, where there, where there, where there are no gun murders. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thank you, David. That's all the time we have. Uh, joining us today were Barbara Slavin, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and Washington Correspondent for Almonitor.com and David Rennie, Lexington columnist for The Economist. This program was produced by Anya Zalewski. Our engineer was David Boddington. I'm Fred Barnes of The Weekly Standard. Thanks for listening. From Washington, the nation's capital, the Voice of America has brought you Issues in the News. You can email your questions or comments to our panelists. Send them to voanews at voanews.com. And to keep up with all the latest news, tune in The Voice of America on radio, television, or the World Wide Web. Join us next week at this time for Issues in the News.